Welcome to another episode of Everything is Arbitrary, the podcast where I examine the unstable basis of the world around us. I'm your host, Erin. I am a writer based in Canberra, Australia. Today's show is going to be about purebred dogs, the cute pups with distinctive features characterizing their breeds, who also sometimes have massive health problems. This has been such an interesting topic for me to get into. I like dogs a lot, but I've never owned one myself, um, and I don't actually know a heap about them. Purebred dogs is a phrase I'd heard, but not one I was able to accurately define with any confidence before I started researching this topic. Humans tend to interfere with the natural world around us, both for better and for worse. Um, we do things like land management, agricultural processes, domestication processes. Whether these things are sustainable and non-destructive can vary. Either way, we've left a substantial mark on plants and other animals. For example, before fruit was domesticated, um, you can tell from historical pictures that it looked quite different. Watermelon, for instance, had way less flesh and a kind of spiraling seed patterns. Bananas had big, hard seeds in the edible bit. Um, eggplants were smaller and came in a wider variety of colors and had spines on the top where they connected to the tree. Corn looked completely different. It was super thin and like barely edible. Peaches were more like cherries and tasted earthier and a bit saltier. So before we started breeding them, most farm animals we eat were much smaller and much less plump. The basic principle is that when you want to cultivate plants or animals, you want to use specimens that have traits more similar to what's useful for human purposes. So you can mix different specimens of the same plant or animal together and hope that the desirable traits of both get passed into the resulting plant or offspring. So you want fleshy, big fruits without too many seeds getting in, in your way. You want bigger animals, so you, your yields have more meat. Um, that's selective breeding, which is a type of genetic modification. Humans have been doing it for tens of thousands of years, um, and this has been way before more advanced kind of sci-fi technology has allowed for even more drastic genetic modification. So like things like exposing organisms to chemicals or radiation to purposely cause mutations or implanting desirable genes into an organism or inactivating undesirable genes. Um, yeah, so we were doing like the more basic version for quite a long time. One of the ways we've historically interfered with nature is by breeding dogs to encourage certain traits. So dogs were bred to make them better hunters or to make them more docile, kind of friendly companions. Dogs descend from grey wolves, but over time they've gotten to be so different from wolves that they're now a completely different species. They can't actually breed with each other. It's not clear why wolves and people started hanging out. One theory is that humans captured wolf pups to keep as pets. Um, but the issue with that is that wolves shan't be tamed. Um, taking one from birth maybe wouldn't be enough to actually domesticate them. Another theory is that hunter-gatherer humans were accompanied by wild wolves who scavenged alongside them. There was probably some kind of environmental reason why it made sense for them to kind of stick together. Wolves were probably advantaged by the resources that humans had. So they would have had food, like leftover foods from, from humans, and shelter from the cold maybe. And so in that scenario, friendlier wolves who go up to humans and socialize with them are advantaged because they get to share in the resources of humans. This means that over time, perhaps as part of humans breeding friendly wolves on purpose, perhaps as a natural result of friendly wolves getting extra resources and being attached to the same groups of people, selective breeding would have made some wolves friendlier and friendlier to humans over time. And over very long periods of time, this would have led to the creation of dogs. Dogs seem to predate agriculture, which might mean that wolves exploited the advantages offered by humans just as much as humans later exploited the advantages offered by dogs in things like farming practices. The origins of dogs is a really fascinating kind of question with not one clear answer. There's lots of competing theories. It's also possible that there was more than one phase of domestication happening in different areas of the world at different times. So after this process of domestication, 
I'm not really sure like what time frame we're talking about. Different sources say different things. So it's really hard to put precise dates on how the human dog relationship developed. But people did start to deliberately breed dogs at some point for practical use. So say you want a dog that's good for hunting. What you can do is get your best hunting dog and breed it with another good hunting dog so that they hopefully pass um, their good hunting traits along to their puppies. Same with sleigh pulling dogs. You get the ones who seem most inclined towards sleigh pulling and breed those. Same with herding, guarding, retrieving game. A lot of these desirable qualities of particular breeds of dogs are evident in the names of the dog breeds that we have. So dogs with hound at the end of their name were originally bred to be good hunters. Terriers were bred to be good at getting animals out of burrows in the ground, like foxes. Shepherds and collies and sheepdogs are good at working with sheep, as you might imagine. Golden retrievers and other retrievers were bred to be good at retrieving animals um, a person shot while they were hunting. Bulldogs and pit bulls were bred to work with bulls, helping butchers to control livestock. Uh, Bulldogs were also used in a terrible sport called bull baiting, which is now quite illegal. In England, back in the early 1700s, people would shove pepper in a bull's nose to make it all ragey. Uh, Then they'd get dogs to attack the bull and basically whichever dog managed to latch itself onto the bull's snout by the teeth would win. Um, So some dogs were explicitly bred for their proclivity to win this competition. And that's what the old British bulldog, which is a type of bulldog, was bred to do. We see that the breeds of dogs, how they look and what traits they have are very much of human design. And these traits are somewhat arbitrary if you consider that they responded to human wants and needs that were very particular to certain lifestyles, time periods, and interests. Hopefully nobody wants to breed a dog just to be good at biting bulls on the nose for the sake of winning like an odd, made-up, abusive contest. Yeah, this contest has made its mark on what bulldogs are like. The old British bulldog used for these contests are now extinct, actually, but it has influenced the breed as it exists in the present day. Um, I think about arbitrariness as well when I watch my brother's border collie, Sam the dog. Shout out to Sam. Uh, He's never been a working sheepdog in his life, and yet he has this seemingly like automatic drive to sort animals. He's tried to round up the neighbor's goats once when he got out and he was unsupervised, no leash, you know. The goats were not happy. Um, and they did not need to be round up. So he has this trait that's characteristic of his breed that's not particularly useful in his day-to-day existence that pretty much only works to anger goats. But it, it's happened, he has this because he comes from a long line of working dogs who were picked to be bred because they were good at this rounding up skill. I don't necessarily think that human interventions in breeding animals is always a problem. Humans and dogs have likely evolved together, and we both benefit from the close relationship in different ways. So we have a tendency to think of the natural world as the world untouched by humans. But it's not at all the case that different species kind of keep to themselves when it comes to their own evolution. In nature, there's many examples of symbiosis. So that's long-term biological interactions between different organisms. And the relationship between dogs and humans isn't unlike, say, the relationship between sea anemones and hermit crabs. So sea anemones use hermit crabs as a kind of taxi. The hermit crabs allow them to ride across the seabed on their back, as well as allowing them to eat whatever leftovers the crab has produced. Hermit crabs are totally cool with this. They actively actually try to get these sea anemones as passengers, so a hermit crab will actually poke an anemone with its pincers to make it release its grip on whatever it's holding. Then it'll hold the anemone in place until it re- reattaches itself to the, to the hermit crab shell. Because anemones use their barbed tentacles to fend off predators for the hermit crab, like octopuses. And the crabs also fend off predators to the anemones, like starfish and fireworms. So they work really well together. As do humans and dogs. It's different because as domesticated animals, dogs would struggle to survive in the wild like their wolf ancestors. But then again, so would we. Bioanthropologist Colin Grove says that 
While humans domesticated dogs, dogs also domesticated humans. For instance, they acted, as he writes, as humans' alarm systems, trackers and hunting aids, garbage disposal facilities, hot water bottles, and children's guardians and playmates. Humans provided dogs with food and security. So it kind of works both ways. And I think there is a case for thinking about the relationship between humans and dogs as symbiotic to some extent. It's another example of the way in which animals interact for mutual survival all the time. But there are definitely unambiguous problems with the ways humans have bred dogs. And that's pretty much what this podcast is going to be about. By the Victorian era, people were still interested in breeding dogs to have a practical purpose, especially farm dogs. But at this time, we also get people interested in breeding dogs for their aesthetic traits. By this point in history, we already have the ritual of livestock shows. So this is where farmers take their livestock, most commonly cattle at first, but can also be pigs, sheep, goats, horses, llamas, alpacas, chickens, other birds, and so on. So they take them to an event. They exhibit the animal and judges determine which one is the best of its breed. Um, what makes an animal the best is basically how close it is to the human-defined ideal of the animal. So, for example, dairy cows will be judged on their appearance, I guess how generally attractive it is, uh, its muscularity, its structural correctness as defined by people, its frame size, um, the quality of the milk it gives. Um, I've seen quite a few of these shows in my lifetime, and it's interesting to watch the judging take place. I don't really get it. I'm not in that world, so I can't really easily tell what makes one cow better than another cow for competition purposes. Um, there is a sense to it in that judging livestock is important for breeding desirable traits. In animals killed for their meat, for example, you need to be able to judge how much meat the animal would yield and what proportion of that would be valuable and what would be awful and that kind of thing. For now, um, I'm going to skirt the issue of animal rights and whether it's okay to shape and judge the structure and appearance of animals based on human wants and their own like aesthetic judgments. Um, but that is what judging is for. Dog shows came about as an add-on to cattle shows in the 1850s, and it proved so popular that they spread to other parts of the world. It also led to the birth of a society that administered dog shows and provided judging guidance in 1873. And this was the British Kennel Club. It produced a book called The Kennel Club Standards, which I guess you could think of as a kind of Bible for determining how exemplary a dog is as per the standards of its breed. As you know, I don't really keep this simple in the podcast, so I think in order to understand the Kennel Club standards, it's worth taking a slight detour to the philosophy of forms. Um, so this comes from the ancient philosopher Plato, um, and is pretty influential to the way we think about appearances of things. So according to Plato, each thing in the world has its like hypothetical ideal correlate. So for example, let's imagine a perfect table. Uh, each leg of the table is the exact same height and extends perfectly from the tabletop at precisely consistent angles. The thickness of the tabletop is also perfectly consistent. There's no marks, no cracks, no indentations. The whole thing is a consistent color. The proportions are perfect. No such table could exist in reality. So perfect forms don't exist in the first place. Um, there's always measurement errors, which may be so slight that they're not detectable without really good equipment, but they're there. As well, when something exists in the real world, it's subject to various forces. It'll erode. It'll get marks on it. The color will vary. Whether you notice it or not, there will be a gap between an ideal, non-existent table in our minds and every single table we've ever encountered in real life. The same is true of, say, trees. You might build in your mind a picture of an ideal tree. But when you go outside and take a look around, no tree will look like that. And yet you'll still be able to recognize the trees when you see them, even though they may deviate potentially quite a lot from the picture in your head. This observation led Plato to conclude that the true and essential nature of a thing can only be captured by an idea. He postulated that there was a world of ideal forms like out there, somewhere we can't access. And the world we live in is a world where those ideal forms are imitated, but never look exactly like the ideal. Um, when we talk generally about tables, as opposed to a specific table, 
we're conjuring the sense of that platonic ideal of a table as a category of thing. The same is true for other objects that aren't as concrete as well. So for instance, there's an ideal form of justice out there and humans attempt to imitate it as we make decisions in the real world, but it's never truly meeting the ideal. So going back to dogs, it's kind of like the Kennel Club defines the platonic ideal form of different dog breeds in its club standards. And it calls on breeders to imitate those ideals as closely as possible in order to win dog shows. This is an important point, I think, when it comes to discussions about arbitrariness, since going back to Plato, we suspected that corporeal manifestations of ideal things can't exist. It's a competition that's impossible to perfect, at least according to some of the most fundamental tenets of like Western thinking. But the Victorian era was a time of perfectionism, a time of suppressing undesirable characteristics and of living in accordance with strictly defined boundaries, social customs and manners. If anyone was going to give achieving platonic ideals a go, it'd be them. It also is a time of eugenics. So eugenics is an ideology of propagating genes that are deemed to be good and destroying those deemed to be bad. These ideas have been responsible for things like the Holocaust and really other terrible movements in history. It's always the case that what is deemed desirable or undesirable by eugenicists is a judgment call rather than strictly objective. And one of the traits of interest is optimizing appearance, which is absurdly subjective. Aside from being immoral, it's also insipid. So one of the things eugenicists were interested in was genetic purity. So genetically pure humans would have ancestors from the same gene pool over many generations. Uh, this is meant to keep good genes within elite groups of people and high-class families. And this is how you get like all these various royal families with very circular-shaped family trees where marrying cousins and so on might be the norm over successive generations. So Queen Victoria was the first cousin of her husband, Prince Albert, and similarly, Queen Elizabeth II and her husband, Prince Philip, are both great-great-grandchildren of Queen Victoria, so they're third cousins in that way. They're also second cousins once removed because they also both descend from King Christian IX of Denmark. So aside from wanting to keep wealth within rich families, they thought that people with awesome genes won't be polluted by the inferior genes of outsiders. But what this kind of inbreeding actually does is eventually cause health problems. So genetic diversity among humans is now understood to be a good thing because it doesn't compound health risks within a family. So lots of genetic disorders are recessive, meaning that it could affect you if you inherit the relevant genes from both your mother's and father's side of the family. If your parents are basically from the same family and that disorder is floating around, you're way more likely to inherit it than if your parents aren't related. So the notion of purity is nonsense, but as we'll find out, this hasn't stopped all dog breeders. By way of example, I've looked up the standards listed for an ideal basset hound. They have a little illustration too. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, as the Kennel Club states, a breed standard is the guideline which describes the ideal characteristics, temperament, and appearance, including the correct color of a breed, and ensures that the breed is fit for function. Absolute soundness is essential. Your ideal basset hound, according to the standards, is a short-legged hound of considerable substance, well-balanced, full of quality. It is important to bear in mind that this is a working hound. It must be fit for purpose, therefore should be strong, active, and capable of great endurance in the field. It is a tenacious hound of ancient lineage, which hunts by scent, possessing a pack instinct and a deep melodious voice. It is placid, never aggressive or timid, affectionate. Its head and skull is domed with some stop and occipital bone prominent of medium width at brow and tapering slightly to muzzle. General appearance of foreface lean, not snipey. There may be a small amount of wrinkle at brow and beside eyes. In any event, skin of head supple enough as to wrinkle slightly when drawn forward, or when head is lowered. Blues of upper lip overlap lower substantially. Nose entirely black, except in light-colored hounds, where it may be brown or liver. Large and well-opened nostrils may protrude a little beyond lips. Eyes are less in shape, never prominent or deep set. Dark, but may shade to mid brown in light-colored hounds. Expression calm and serious. Light or yellow eye, highly undesirable. Ears are set on low, just below line of eye. Long, reaching only slightly beyond end of muzzle of correct length, but not excessively so. With the mouth, jaws strong, with perfect, regular, complete scissor bite, i.e. upper teeth closely overlapping lower teeth, and set square to the jaws. Its upper forearm inclined slightly inwards, but not to such an extent as to prevent free action or to result in legs touching each other when standing or in action. Some wrinkles of skin may appear on lower legs, but this must on no account be excessive. Its body is long and deep throughout length, breastbone prominent, but chest neither narrow nor unduly deep. And, you know, it keeps going on like this. If you're interested in more detail, like, you can look it up. I'll have the link on the show notes. 
To be fair, the Kennel Club says that if a Basset Hound seems to have a condition or even over-exaggerated qualities that might compromise its health or well-being, it shouldn't be judged as an ideal dog. But they still emphasize that we're judging the proximity between the dog and its ideal form as laid out in the standards. It says if a dog possesses a feature, characteristic, or color described as undesirable or highly undesirable, it is strongly recommended that it should not be rewarded in the show ring. The Kennel Club argues that its standards were initially set with function in mind, but I am a little skeptical. How does the color of a dog's eyes affect its function as a working dog? Basset hounds have long ears and flappy skin, which is thought to help it smell. Their flaps hold in scent for longer, and their ears help them scoop up more scent particles. This helps them maintain the reference smell when they're searching for something. But it's only useful to a point. Wrinkly skin can be more prone to bacteria accumulations that are hard to clear out and can result in infections. And sometimes long ears just actually get in the way of the dog walking around and doing what it wants. The Basset Hound's short little legs have to prop up what is otherwise a very sizable, kind of dense dog, which can put pressure on its joints. Its disproportionate back can also give rise to disc disease in the spine. So yeah, I don't quite buy that purebreds are bred to be very practical. What the Kennel Club also talk about is its role in delineating the differences between dog breeds. And while function and temperament are a part of that, they point out that appearance also plays a major role. As they say on their website, it is a fact that dogs were bred to perform such a wide variety of functions that has given us the diverse range of dogs, small and tall, energetic and laid back, that we now have. Although many dogs may not perform the same functions today, it is those physical attributes laid down in the standards and the look of a breed and or its temperament which makes the person decide, I want a dog like that. I love pugs. I must have a whippet. Eventually, I think, it does kind of come down to an aesthetic unless you're owning a dog to be like a, a working dog. They point out that standardization has a function too. I mean, if you buy a purebred puffy from a breeder, they'll grow in a predictable way, have a predictable character and so on. The kennel clubs say, this in turn helps individuals and families to make educated and responsible decisions about which breed is best for their lifestyle. If they are able to factor in the amount of time they can dedicate to grooming, how much exercise they are able to give their dog, the size of their home, and how their dog will be around children, they are more likely to choose the right dog and not end up with the heartbreaking situation where the dog has to be rehomed. Maybe this is true, but it means organizing the lives of dogs around the human market for them. I want to come back to this thought later, but for now, I would argue that if you bring a living thing into your life, you have to accept the risk that it's not going to turn out the way you expected. And despite attempts to control nature, there are always spontaneous genetic mutations, environmental factors, and so on that make complete predictability impossible. And for all this talk about function and predictability, the standards are very specific and for sure arbitrary. The club started at a time when people were literally inventing dog breeds. A bunch of people decided in the Victorian era what certain breeds of dogs would look like and be like, and those definitions are just decisions with little reference to what the dog inherently needs to function and to be healthy. So we can take the Basset Hound again. Why can't it have yellow eyes? Or... Um, it's defined as being between 33 and 38 centimetres tall. Why can't it be 40 centimetres tall? You know, like, a yellow-eyed tall dog isn't a worse dog. It's not incapable of its scent hound duties. You know, no dog meets a platonic ideal, and being a little further away from it than other dogs doesn't stop it from being a good doggy. But let's say you want a basset hound to win at Crufts which is the big British dog show that's overseen by the Kennel Club. You'll buy a purebred Basset Hound as a puppy from a breeder who has overseen many generations of Basset Hounds and who've tried to make those Basset Hounds as close to the traits listed in the standards as they could. You get a little certificate of lineage which recognises that it's been bred from Basset Hounds only for successive generations. This is basically the definition of a purebred dog, a dog that comes with this certificate. A basset hound that's been really successful in shows might have sired your puppy and a whole bunch of other puppies. 
The size of the gene pool of different breeds vary and practices of breeders vary, but it's possible that your puppy will have some royal style inbreeding in its heritage. Inbreeding and selective breeding are different things, but they do co-occur in purebred dogs. This is because if two dogs have desirable traits, they're seen as valid partners. Um, not, maybe not so much so if they're immediate family members, but cousins might not be seen as a huge problem. Some level of inbreeding isn't a huge issue, actually, but if it has happened over successive generations, it will be prone to certain conditions. So purebred basset hounds have an effective population size of 74.2. An effective population size is a measure of how many individuals are contributing genetically to a breed population. So that tells you the size of the breed's gene pool. So 74.2 is not great. Lower than 100 is considered critical by conservationists, and below 50 brings a breed close to extinction. As a direct result of selective breeding, the body of a basset hound has become lower, the hind legs are shorter, the ears are a lot longer, the face is shorter, and the skin has more folds. Um, in fact, the basset hound isn't alone in looking quite different from its ancestors. Um, again, I'll link to pictures in the show notes. The ironic outcome of pure breeding is that dogs or particular breeds actually look quite different or very different, um, even to how they did a hundred years ago, which kind of flies in the face of the Kennel Club's promise that the standards help with consistency and predictability. In the past, Kennel Club rules allowed mother-son and brother-sister mating, but that has now been banned. There's also the practice of killing dogs at birth if they don't fit the standards, and to be fair, again, as of 2009, the Kennel Club no longer endorses these practices. But, for example, white German Shepherd puppies who were born perfectly healthy sometimes are culled. Same with some Rhodesian Ridgebacks. So Ridgebacks have a characteristic ridge on their spine. The ridge has no practical purpose. It's just part of how the standards define a Ridgeback. A large minority of Ridgeback dogs are born without this ridge, and sometimes, despite being perfectly healthy, these ridgeless dogs get cold. This is despite the fact that ridgeless ridgebacks don't suffer from a congenital condition called dermoid sinus. In dermoid sinus, an affected dog has little holes on their back, which look harmless, but in some cases, the hole can go all the way into the membrane that covers the spinal cord, and that can lead to discharge and infection, as well as neurological symptoms. So not having a ridge actually protects that dog from that condition. Some Kennel Club members featured in the 2008 BBC documentary Pedigree Dogs Exposed, which is a documentary I highly recommend. Um, they seem to have trouble getting their heads around the arbitrariness of the standards that they impose on these poor dogs. So one woman spoke in favour of killing ridgeless ridgebacks, saying it's not a ridgeback if it doesn't have a ridge. I mean, obviously that depends on how you define a ridgeback. Even if you say, well, that dog isn't ridgeback, look at its ridgeless back, it's still a dog. It's still a living, healthy creature. And these people really seem unable to see that. The Kennel Club has withdrawn their endorsement of the practice of culling ridgeless ridgebacks in 2009. But I find these attitudes which have led to the deaths of perfectly healthy puppies, both like really upsetting and also interesting like how do people get so attached to these standards it's an obsession with an ideal even though again um we know that ideals are not realizable Stickless for standards leads to some really huge health problems for certain breeds of dogs. I should say that practices and level of inbreeding vary across different breeds, so it's important not to generalise too much. But certainly purebred dogs tend to be less healthy than the good old mutt with more like uncertain, undocumented family histories. Non-purebreds also tend to live a little longer. The BBC documentary talks at length about the dangers of inbreeding. 
Cavalier King Charles Spaniels were invented in the 1920s for not very practical reasons. Breeders decided that they wanted to recreate what King Charles Spaniels, which is a different breed, looked like during King Charles II's reign based on historical records. Nowadays, purebred Cavalier King Charles Spaniels are at heightened risk of a very painful neurological disorder called syringomyelia. Literally, uh, it's where the brain is too big for the skull, so it bumps up against the back of the skull. So dogs can be carriers without being symptomatic. Some dogs might be only mildly affected, but where dogs are more moderately or severely affected, they either require very risky brain surgery or they're put down. The alternative is a life in agony. The breed is also at higher risk of mitral valve problems, so affecting their heart. It's believed that in the 50s, and 60s, some Cavalier King Charles Spaniels with heart problems were used extensively as studs, and those decisions are still reverberating for the breed now. As the documentary says, um, Labradors are more likely to suffer joint and eye problems, Springer Spaniels with enzyme deficiencies, Golden Retrievers at a higher risk of genetic cancers, Boxes are more likely to suffer heart disease, cancer, and epilepsy, the West Highland White Terriers from allergies. All living things are subject to illness and disability. That is normal. Suffering, to some extent, is normal. But humans tinkering with dog breeds have led to, I think, an unnecessary level of suffering. Many purebred bulldogs are unable to mate without assistance or give birth without a caesarean section. Um, that's not practical. Pogs have frightening health issues. Over time, as their faces are bred to get flatter, they have more and more breathing problems. You can actually like see videos on YouTube of pogs basically just passing out while they're sitting down because they're not getting enough oxygen. They get eye problems from the unaccommodating structure of their face. They also have massive spine issues like sharp spine curvature, which happens as a result of people trying to breed them to get those super curly tails because that's what's set out in the standards. Are curly tails practical? I mean, are pugs practical? I mean, I, I think pugs are cute, but when I hear a pug with breathing problems, like out on a walk, I do feel concerned for its life. Pugs were actually brought from China to Europe in the 16th century, um, although they looked quite different back then. The modern pug that we'd recognise today was probably invented after 1860 through selective breeding. While its problems weren't deliberately cultivated, its features which led to those problems were. There's more problems among different breeds, but I can't list them all here. And what's interesting is that since that BBC documentary came out, the Kennel Club did make changes to its standards to emphasise the health of the dog, to make reference to its practical purpose. For example, the standards changed for pugs so that now instead of having to have a very short nose, it only has to have a relatively short nose. The club also made greater health screening available to dogs and included vet checks as part of competitions. So you can't win if your dog is like on its deathbed. These changes made in 2009 were very controversial among breeders. And I mean, the evidence is that they haven't actually led to huge changes in the way dogs are judged in practice. Top pugs still have really fat faces. They still sometimes struggle to breathe. learning about kennel club standards I've been playing with a kind of thought experiment. So what what if we bred humans for specific appearances and purposes through selective breeding? So say we want a baby piano prodigy. We get two adults who are good at piano, get them to mate, both should have big hands because we know that wide hand spans are good for piano playing. Um, it allows you to reach further between the keys. 
Both should have relatively slender fingers, not too big as to be lumbering. You want your prodigy to be able to press a key without like accidentally pressing others. But likewise, not so small as to be strengthless. Um, they should have good endurance for long practice sessions and relatively good short distance vision so that they can read music. Um, they should be tall enough to reach the piano pedals with comfort and ease. Well, say we want a computer prodigy. We want someone who is myopic so that the computer screen is in clear view, but they don't have distractions in the middle to long distance. And they should be able to easily absorb vitamin D so they don't have to go outside often. So their complexion should probably be one of abject pallor. Um, computing doesn't require extensive leg use, so, you know, small legs would be fine. Uh, they should have good finger dexterity, again, with fingers that are neither weak nor stubby, so they can work with their keyboard. I mean, I could keep going. The point is that if I kept going, I would be writing some kind of dystopian sci-fi. Selectively breeding humans to serve particular functions is something that some eugenicists might have explored as an option, but generally it is met and should be met with some level of disgust. Like, where is the individual freedom in these schemes? Or, like, the ability to explore the world and expand on interests and skills? Where's the creativity? Where's the opportunity to be something other than what someone else has laid out in front of you? If most of us can agree that this is a kind of reprehensible way to envision the future of humankind, what makes it okay for us to design the future of animals? Like, pretty much, like, quite similar terms. Thinking about animal rights isn't particularly new, although it kind of is in the Western world. So we have, like, religions like in Jainism, which is a religion that dates back to the 6th century BC in India. There's a huge concern over animal rights. Um, Jainism holds that the ideal way of living involves living without harming any living thing. They're strictly vegetarian and may, for example, sweep the paths in front of them before walking so as to not accidentally tread on, like, a tiny creature. Some might wear masks to avoid breathing in insects. Other religions, like, say, Hinduism and Buddhism, likewise regard all living things as sacred and may practice vegetarianism under the principle of non-harming. These are really complex belief systems and are practiced, like, very, very differently in different parts of the world. But certainly, you do have belief systems which are interested in animal rights and that understand that harm to one organism reverberates in various ways, which is an accurate way of looking at things as well. I mean, we literally do live in an ecosystem. Our survival is contingent on the survival of the other living things around us. By contrast, lots of human cultures have a hierarchy between humans and animals. So humans might take on a custodial role for their environment. They might exploit animals. Some cultures manage to play these roles sustainably. The West has its own kind of thing. So going back to ancient Greece, Aristotle argued that animals don't have the capacity of reason the way that humans do, and so it's justified for humans to rule over them. And we see this idea reflected in the Bible, where man is said to have dominion over other creatures. Dominion is not a word that comes up a lot. It just means sovereignty or control. So some interpret it to mean ownership, that animals are the property of humans. Others think of it more as like a parent-child relationship, and note that just like humans, according to the Bible, Working animals are meant to get a day of rest, too. Either way, we're in charge. Uh, we find this echoed in French philosopher Descartes in the mid-1600s. He wrote that animals have no subjective experience and so could basically be interpreted as autonomous or machines with no minds, no capacity for reason, no soul, and ready to be utilised for whatever mechanistic purpose we have in mind for them. In this case, animals are barely even seen as real. You may or may not agree with these ideas, but what I want to point out is that it is a really distinct way of approaching animals philosophically. So whereas in some religions like Jainism, uh, we see humans as participants in a wider system alongside other animals and plants, in this Western tradition, we see hierarchy with humans at the top and with sovereignty over those plants and animals beneath us. This view has softened somewhat over time. Animal rights legislation has slowly come to pass. Um, in the 1600s, for instance, there was legislation in Ireland forbidding people to directly pull wool off of sheep and to hitch a plough to a horse's tail, noting that those things are really cruel. 
Um, around the same time, uh, the North American colony of Massachusetts also made it illegal in its constitution for humans to be cruel to any animal they were using, say as work animals. By the end of the 1600s, we have British philosopher John Locke arguing against Descartes, saying that animals can feel. Uh, it seems to me like an obvious argument, but you know, there you go. Um, he went further, actually, to say that it was morally wrong to hurt an animal unnecessarily. And in his formalizing his thoughts, he didn't so much argue for animal rights, but rather saying that people had the moral responsibility not to hurt them. So while that's like still a change from beliefs and practices before him, humans are still occupying that high rung on the species ladder. Um, humans have rights and responsibilities. Animals don't. In the 1700s, we have French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau arguing that it doesn't really matter whether or not animals have the capacity for reason. They have sentience. They are conscious beings. And so it follows that they have an inherent right not to be harmed. He also encouraged vegetarianism and belief that people who ate meat tended to be crueler in character. British philosopher Jeremy Bentham argued for animal rights also on an utilitarian basis. So utilitarianism is all about minimizing the amount of total suffering in the world. And so if something has the capacity to suffer, as animals do, you should morally take that suffering into account when deciding how to act. It's not really until the 1800s that we start seeing more of a push for animal rights legislation in the Western world, as well as the establishment of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty Against Animals and, and similar kinds of organisations. Laws began to be far more extensive than before. So previously, animal-related laws tended to be more concerned with how hurting animals would hurt the owner. So, for instance, if you injured a cow... Um, that would be an economic loss for the cow's owner and a property crime. Um, at this point, though, um, and as with those early Irish and Massachusetts laws, legislation was starting to centre around not causing unnecessary suffering for the animal itself. The animal rights movement snowballed from there into the 20th century and now. Uh, this is a movement essentially to change the way animals are viewed, not as creatures lower than humans, which we enjoy rightful dominion over, but as living things that shouldn't be as morally and legally distinct from humans as they are, they should also have rights. Um, so this view is probably still quite fringe in Western societies, but it is increasingly coming to inform the law, some policies and some of our practices. We're seeing more and more people adopting, say, vegetarian and vegan diets, for example, um, more rigors around animal testing practices, laws about how animals bred for meat are kept in the conditions of their slaughter, bans on practices like whaling and overfishing, looking at how animals are treated when they're being experimented on, um, that kind of thing. So in this like Western context, we're in quite a contested space and we're actually in the midst of quite radically shifting ideologies about the human relationship to animals. Um, animals have gone from being seen basically as machines to widely regarded as sentient beings in the space of a few hundred years. And in that time, a whole bunch of dog breeds have been invented. The Kennel Club and other institutions like it have formed around the world. And as well, thoughts about eugenics have dampened progress around human and animal rights. Yeah, contested space. But the wider point is that things got to be where they are because of this history of Western thought around animals. You don't get here without believing on some level that you have dominion over animals and that it's cool for you to like shape them based on what you want. It would have been impossible to get to this position if we historically saw animals as equals um, the same way that some other societies and belief systems do. And likewise... Things have changed and probably will continue to change as people's ideas about animals also change. Dog breeds are a human invention and we have the capacity to make this system less strict and less cruel. a lot about the British Kennel Club, but similar clubs exist all around the world in around 100 countries, um, and they all host their own competitions. 
There's also an international body, the World Canine Organization, or the Fédération Cynologique Internationale, based in Belgium. There's around 340 recognizable breeds of dog today. The Kennel Club in the UK recognizes 210 of them, and the American Kennel Club recognizes 192. Dog breeds are very different in appearance. It's kind of hard to reconcile the fact that the tiny pug is related to the German Shepherd, but these extreme differences come from this history we have of selective breeding, of choosing some dogs to be small and flat-faced and others to be big and hardy and crime-solving. Dogs aren't the only creature that have changed as a result of their relationship to humans. Obviously, we've been involved in the extinction of animals, like the dodo, for instance. We've also been involved in domesticating like a whole bunch of animals um, and changing animal behavior and habitats as we clear forested areas, build tall buildings, leave around waste food and so on. Dogs are a really extreme example in how much we've fashioned the bodies and characters of animals for our wants, needs and whims. But any domesticated animal breeds have a similar history and to varying levels ensuing health problems. Even goldfish actually aren't immune Another species which has close interactions with humans and get entered into aesthetic contests is cats. So cats are selectively bred too. Cat fanciers societies, like kennel clubs, exist around the world and have similarly extensive breed standards. Selective breeding and inbreeding are practices that shape and affect breeds of cat and some lead to health problems as well. It's a pretty wide-spanning issue, and there are some both small and, and big-scale possible solutions. On the smaller scale, we can do more to provide purebreds with health scans, genetic analyses, and vet checkups, which assess whether an animal is in pain or is likely to suffer. We can refrain from breeding animals that have genetic disorders, and we can choose not to breed characters of a disorder together. We can also put an end to inbreeding within immediate families, um, this might actually not be enough in breeds where the gene pool is so tiny that all the dogs alive are actually pretty closely related anyway. Remembering that the problems of inbreeding aren't always immediately clear after only a generation or two, but can be very pronounced after many generations, even if two animals being bred are more distantly related. More radically, we could stop selective breeding or mix in breeds of dogs to improve their hardiness. The follow-up to the 2008 um, BBC documentary I mentioned features a case of a Dalmatian being bred with a non-Dalmatian dog in order to limit the risk of a congenital defect in its offspring, where the dog's uric acid can be built up to such dangerous levels that it causes their bladder to explode unless it's promptly taken to a vet. Um, we can also stop breeding to very strict and very arbitrary breed standards. We can accept creatures like ridgeless ridgebacks, knowing that it's enough to be born as a thriving, happy dog without a distinctive-looking spine. This would mean that we'd have less predictability about the bodies and the temperament of our pets. Uh, it would mean having less control over the animals we invite into our lives. We'd be releasing some of that dominion, although still not completely. The question of whether it's okay to buy a dog or cat or... Uh, any animal from a breeder um, is an interesting one. I'll link to a few different pieces on the topic in the show notes. The Australian animal organisation RSPCA doesn't discourage it at all, um, but it does encourage taking your time to do your research about the ethics of any breeders you come across. Um, good breeders won't mind you taking the time to do this because they'll care about the welfare of animals too and would probably be heartened by the fact that you care. Otherwise, it's not a simple dichotomy that breeders are bad or good. Dogs raised by breeders tend to be well cared for by someone who has overseen many generations of puppies. Um, they tend to get space to roam around and hang out with their mother. And you do know the dog's background. If you have a reason as well to want a specific breed, say because you have allergies to certain breeds or you require a service dog, I think it, also, it makes complete sense. As well, as I mentioned, the extent of health problems in inbreeding varies over different breeds, so researching that is also going to be a really good idea. We should definitely avoid puppy farms. Um, this isn't a topic that I've broached, but it is a serious animal rights issue. 
puppy farms produce purebreds, but also other kinds of dogs too. Um, it's where dogs are bred in an intensive breeding facility. So they're usually large-scale commercial operations. Um, the dogs there are there to get pregnant and deliver puppies. They're treated like breeding machines. And the conditions are soul-crushing. That They're like they're terrible. They're often overcrowded. They're dirty. The dogs are kept in tiny cages. They aren't taken out walks or to play um it's really hard to emphasize how awful they are um, most breeders as far as i can tell would be appalled by puppy farms but it is still worth investigating what kind of operation you might be supporting before buying an animal in any context um, aside from doing your research on breeders the rspca discourages also buying animals from pet stores because of their connection with puppy farms. Neither the stores themselves nor puppy farms give puppies the things they need to thrive. So they may have been weaned too early or sick from being confined in tiny spaces. There are also always animals looking for good homes who are up for adoption. Adoption comes with some risks, sure. You know less about what you're getting. You have to be prepared to work with the animal as it is. With any behavioural issues it might have as a result of trauma or neglect, it might grow to be something different to what you expected. But it also doesn't contribute to any of the issues that I've been talking about over this episode. That was another episode of Everything is Arbitrary. Um, at the moment, I'm planning on new episodes coming out every fortnight or three weeks or so. For show notes, references, and to connect on social media or anything like that, you can visit everythingisarbitrary.com. Thanks. Thanks.